Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a good God. You're a good Father. You loved us so much you sent your Son, Jesus, to die for us, that we can come before your throne today as saved and forgiven people. Lord, you've given us your word. You reveal yourself to us through it. And Lord, we just pray that as we come to this passage this morning, that you challenge us to live for Christ. Point our eyes to Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you can fix the echo a little bit, if that's okay. Some of you might have heard about the um, Brisbane Open House event around the city this weekend. There's about 400 buildings that are being opened to the public, and it's all in celebration of what's called World Architecture Day earlier this week. But let me tell you from experience that architecture isn't just about hot houses and beautiful buildings. I studied architecture for five years, and as part of surviving what we insiders call architorture, there's a lot of stress and pain involved in this. And the greatest pain that was inflicted on us is something that we call the end of semester critiques. It's pretty much what the name suggests. Uh, we come, we present our individual designs, and we get critiqued. Some of us get told that we're stupid, others got yelled at, and then others were also left in tears. And some of this was probably justified. I remember people designing multi-story buildings, and they forgot the stairs and the lifts. <laughs> Someone else in my year, uh, one of my friends, designed this massive building, and they're sitting just on these two columns. We were doing a public transport project uh, in our final year down the Gold Coast, and someone thought it'd be pretty cool to, instead of designing a bus line, to design two Ferris wheels and a cable car running through four kilometers of surface paradise. So we'd present our designs. The critiquers would tell some of us how bad we were, or the issues, and right at the end, after 20, 30 minutes of grilling, when things calm down a little bit, we'd be told how we're to move ahead. What now? What are the practical things we need to do? What's wrong and what now? And this is kind of the journey that we've been through as we've gone through the letter of Corinthians. Remember, Paul's received a letter. He's heard some news about this church, and he replies to them in this letter. He tells them what's wrong, what the issues they have, and how they're to deal with them. And now we reach the conclusion, the final chapter, where the tone changes a little bit, if you've seen. Here we see these practical things, stuff about what's ahead, what they have to do now, and tying up some loose ends and some uh, short-term travel plans. Surprisingly, if we have a look, there's a lot of things we can learn from this concluding farewell. There's a whole variety, there's a stack of things that uh, Paul talks about and comments that we could focus whole sermons on, things about giving, about ministry and opposition and putting our plans in the Lord, just for example. But this morning, we want to have a look at the whole chapter and I want to focus on the things that Paul wants the church to do. There's five quick challenges for the Corinthians as they, as they move ahead, five things that the church they ought to be united in doing, rather than being divided in all the issues that we've seen in the past months. And five things that I think God is challenging us today as a church to do. So if you have a, your Bibles open, have a look. 
The first is about the collection in verses 1 to 4. And the challenge here, I think, is that Paul wants the church, he wants the whole church to show compassion to those in need. Verse 1, he says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. This is another issue here that the church has raised for Paul to address. And we know uh, this with the introduction. He says, now about or now concerning. And if you have a look at these verses, they aren't talking about the church offering, even though there might be some good principles coming out of it. You see, at the time of this letter, Jerusalem was going through a huge famine. And the Jewish Christians, they were doing it really tough. So Paul, he came up with this idea of collecting money uh, from the Gentile churches that he was ministering to and sending this gift of money back to the Jerusalem church. And this was a really brave idea because it wasn't just about sending money. It was also an act of solidarity and unity in the church. We've seen in this letter and in Romans, as we saw beginning of the year, that Jews and Gentiles didn't really get along that well. So this collection, if we think about it, this monetary gift was really saying, we're with you. We want to help. It doesn't matter if we're Jew and Gentile, if we're thousands of kilometers away. We want to practice the gospel by showing compassion as a church to those in need. And this collection, this gift, it wasn't just an impulse collection. It wasn't a spontaneous gift. In fact, Paul wants this gift to be thoughtful and regular. Verse 2, it says, On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. A sum of money in light of your income, it's thoughtful, it's thought through. And setting aside in the first day of the week, it's regular. It's not spontaneous, it's not one-off, it's regular. Verse 3 and 4, then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Paul wanted here to make clear that uh, this gift was from the church, the church in Corinth. Paul wasn't stealing the money. He wasn't taking credit for it. It was the church that was being generous. It was the church that was being united in this act of compassion. Remember the church in Corinth, they were divided and they were messy. But Paul wants this church to be united and together in this compassion effort. He's saying, this is one way you guys can come together. This is one way you can be united in living out the gospel. And I think it's still the same today. We can build and grow our unity as a church by together corporately showing compassion to those in need. And, you know, we're really blessed right now because we've been hearing about all these different ways to do it already in this service. Think about Operation Christmas Child over there. We've heard week after week after week the bits and pieces that uh, are needed for each box. And packing day is next Saturday morning, remember. What a great way for us as a church to get together in an effort to share the love of Christ in the world. We've heard this morning about care outreach, caring for people in rural Australia who are struggling 
We've got a month or so to practice this thoughtful, regular giving. In two weeks' time, we're actually having a Compassion Sunday, a Sunday dedicated to the work of compassion. It's a group, if you don't know, with a vision to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. What a gospel effort. Maybe you can think about between now and then about sponsoring a child and the steady, regular giving for the cause of Christ. Let's not get so inward-focused, so caught up in our problems inside the church that we forget about our commission to share the love of Christ to others, that we forget about being like Christ and helping the poor and those in need around us. And this is Paul's first challenge, to show compassion to others. As we move on to verse 5, we find that Paul is laying out his travel plans. But even as we dig into these uh, seemingly uh, practical uh, verses about his plans, there's a challenge for us. There's a request from Paul to the church. Verse 5, After I go through Macedonia, I'll come to you, for I'll be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while, even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I, do not want to see you now, for I do not want to see you now and only make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Here we find another way that the Corinthians, another thing that the Corinthians can do practically as a church to help Paul on his way. A bed, provisions, hospitality, fellowship, and teaching. He wants the Corinthian church to say to Paul, Hey Paul, we're with you in this. We want to help you in your gospel work. And while gospel work is rewarding, it's also tough and it's uncertain and it begs opposition to come. We can see already that Paul's plans here are a little bit vague. It's all if the Lord permits. It's up to God. And verse 8 and 9 shows that gospel opportunities always come with opposition. But I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many who oppose me. So Paul calls the Corinthian church to help him on his way, to take their eyes off their division, their inward fighting, and to find another way to come together in showing unity, to show love as the body of Christ. And I think God wants us today to continue to do this, to help gospel workers along their way. As a church, again, I think there's examples of us doing this right now. We think of Lloyd Nicholas, who's here this morning. We as a church have really embraced him and his family. We embraced him before in his role in OM, and now, even as he battles with health issues, we're still with him, praying for him, thinking of him, supporting him. And that's the gospel at work in the church. We've seen guys grow up here over the past years and decades who are serving in ministry all over the place. We think of Mark Mackay down the road, Rod Bishop down south, and Rachel Hughes in Japan. We as a church have helped heaps of gospel workers along their way. And we can praise God about this. But you know, we need to keep this mentality going. Because there's a whole bunch of ways we can continue to do this as a church. We have missionaries that we support coming back on furlough. 
we think of the Westons who are coming back at the end of the year. How can we help them as a church along their way? We have students studying in Bible colleges. I was talking to the principal of Brisbane School of Theology, which is where Alvin went to, talking to this guy about a year ago, and he asked me about two students at BST who were attending Sunnybank. And at that time, I didn't even know who these two students were, let alone these two guys in our church going to Bible college. I had no idea. We ought to know who they are and support them on their way. There's people wanting to go overseas on missions, short-term, long-term, and people like me who are looking forward to full-time ministry. Let's remember Paul's challenge to help gospel workers along their way. Maybe it's provisions. Maybe it's opportunities to serve and grow. Maybe it's awareness and support and prayer, showing that we care, resourcing them the best we can with what God gives us and lifting them up to God in prayer always. How can we as a church help gospel workers along their way? As we move on to the third challenge, it's a real quick one, and we come across two teachers in Timothy and Apollos, two totally different personalities and followings. It's like if Apollos was like Billy Graham compared to Timothy being like me or Brendan. And the Corinthians relate to these men in totally different ways. Have a look at verse 11. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. You see, Timothy is this young student in training of Paul's, and Paul's sending him to this divided church. This church, if you think about it, full of factions and groups and grumblings following various people. Of course, Timothy, this young guy, would be scared of what might happen. But Paul here challenges this church to respect him, to relate to him in a way so that he has no fear. Why? Simply because of this. He is carrying on the work of the Lord. And contrast this with Apollos. There was a group in Corinth who really loved this teacher. In fact, the church was asking Paul, when's Apollos coming back? When's Apollos visiting us again? It's kind of like when Daryl was away. When's Daryl coming back? And so Paul replies in verse 12. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. The Corinthians, they loved Apollos. They adored him. They had time for him. They couldn't wait for him to return, but he wasn't coming back yet. And probably he thought to do this so he didn't stir up the factions during this time of Paul's teaching. But Timothy, he didn't have the same following. And the Corinthians, they had no time for him. So Paul has to explicitly challenge them. He says, remember chapters 1 to 4, remember the beginning of this letter. It's not about who you follow. It's not about who's the superstar evangelist. So respect Timothy, because he's doing the work of the Lord. 
And if we didn't get that application from chapters 1 to 4, then God wants to challenge us again, not to play favorites, not to form followings or factions, but to respect all workers of the Lord. It's pretty easy when we go to church, we get the bulletin as we come in to check it out. Oh, yep, Daryl's on today. Oh, no, Josh is on tonight. (laughs) Or to say, I follow Brendan or David or Alvin. I'm in such and such's group, whatever it may be. Or to even ignore God's servants. I don't listen to him. I'll disregard his teaching. You see, God wants us to respect all of his workers all of them, whoever they may be. Because ultimately, they're all doing his work. They're all doing gospel work, sharing Christ and growing people in Christ. So how can we show respect to all of God's servants? Here's a quick list that I read recently about um, respecting and caring pastors, but you could adapt it to any leader. It says, pray for him and pray with the person. Talk to him about a sermon, about the Bible study, about the ministry that's going on. Tell him about how God is growing you. Care for him. Care for her practically and follow their leadership. Paul's challenge, show respect to all of God's workers, all the pastors and the leaders that he places here. And now Paul moves on. He moves on from leaders to talk about the average Joe Blow. We're getting to the end of the year, and at college, we always have what we call a Thanksgiving dinner. And as part of the fun, the lecturers, they give out to us some novelty awards uh, to the students. Last year, Brendan won the Weirdest weirdest Hairstyles Award because he kept putting color into it. And he was also a front runner into the Always Late Award. I think I got a mention for the culinary award too, for posting too much food photos. But there's always a more serious award for the quiet achiever, the person who quietly works away, who's studious and helpful, who serves and cares without seeking any attention. And we know all of these quiet achievers. We've seen them in the church, these servant-hearted people that just work away in the background, whose families are totally dedicated to the work of the Lord. And that's who Paul talks about next in verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Stephanus was mentioned in chapter 1. Fortunatus and Achaicus, they're three friends who dropped in for a care visit to Paul. These guys are quiet achievers. They attract a following. They don't seek attention from others. They just serve, care, and love. Not the typical people you'd submit to and recognize, but that's exactly what Paul challenges them to do, to submit to these people, look up to them, listen to them, to see them as worthy examples, 
and to recognize these men, to call them out, to thank them and encourage them. So Paul's challenge here, recognize these guys and girls who are tirelessly serving God's people. He's saying, you guys, you're in division, you're squabbling about each other. But instead of ripping each other apart, why don't you build each other up? Why don't you applaud these quiet achievers, these hard, uh, tired, and busy servants? You see, that's a way to move forward into unity. And I think that's still God's challenge today in our church, to recognize those in our fold who are tirelessly serving God's people, the individuals, the couples, the families who quietly serve, quietly love, and care. So maybe just stop for a moment and think about this church. Think about those who are giving it all, those who are going hard in serving God here, those who are plodding away in the background and not seeking any attention. And think about how you can recognize them and thank them for their service. I don't want to completely embarrass anyone, but we have a heap of these sorts of people in our church. We have the Carpenters, the Criddles, the Melvilles. I think their whole family is serving this morning right now. The Shims, the Rains, those who set up for morning tea, those who clean up this auditorium, those who mow the lawn, the young guys and girls who are leading kids' church week in and week out. And like Liana said, all the fellow parents in this church, how can you, how can we recognize these servants in our church, these people who are living out the gospel in ways that often go unnoticed. And imagine what would happen if this was our practice. Instead of fighting over who has authority and dividing and arguing over church politics, instead of looking down on others and tearing each other apart, imagine if we recognize each other. We recognized the quiet achievers. We recognize those who are serving God tirelessly, those who are living out the gospel quietly in the background. How can we recognize them? How can we thank them, encourage them, and build them up? You see, this was the Corinthian problem. They tore each other down instead of building each other up. And it would be high and mighty for us today to say that this isn't our problem either. So Paul's challenge, recognize those who serve God's people tirelessly. And finally, we arrive at verses 19 to 21. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. It's the part of Paul's farewell here. But underneath this, we see a genuine love and fellowship. All the churches in Asia send their greetings. Hundreds, even thousands of believers. Priscilla and Aquila, a couple who did a ministry in Corinth, and they led, a, they, led a house, they lead a house church in Ephesus. In fact, all the brothers and sisters, all these guys, send their greetings to the Corinthians. This is real inter-church fellowship in unity as God's people. 
And Paul's final practical challenge is here at the end of the verse. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Imagine you're in the church in Corinth. You might follow Apollos. You advocate for eating meat, and you're not a fan of tongues. And you have to greet someone who's on the other side, in the other group, someone who doesn't agree with you. And you have to greet them with a holy kiss. It's a challenge, right? But think about it. It's a challenge that builds up and fosters fellowship to grow. These manly Greek Corinthian blokes, uh, they're saying we don't like each other, but we've got to learn this. We've got to do this Christian love thing. We've got to greet and do this holy kiss thing. And over time, the fellowship will genuinely grow. You see, God wants us to grow the fellowship and unity in this church. And a great way for us to start this is a simple greeting. Maybe it's a kiss, maybe not. It's just a smile, a handshake. For the young guys, it might be a dab or whatever that thing's going on. And we do this to everyone, to all. Not just your buddies, not, not just the guys in your group. Because what kind of church doesn't greet each other warmly? What does it say about our church if there's no fellowship? What does it say if there's no love for each other, no relationships, just stone-cold individuals or stone-cold groups walking in and out every Sunday morning? That's not a church. That's not how God wants his people, the people he saved through Christ, to come together in fellowship. So Paul challenges them. He challenges us. Greet each other warmly. Grow fellowship and unity, not division and animosity. And as we finish off, there's two more quick parts that uh, we have to deal with. One we skipped over. Uh, the first, that one is found right in the middle of this chapter. And I think this verse really sums up the way forward. Here we find five rapid-fire commands from Paul to the church. Uh, head back to verse 13 and 14. He says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. The first two, they're basically saying the same thing. Be on guard or be watchful in regards to the gospel. He's saying, Keep putting Christ front and center in your church instead of drifting away from truth and drifting apart from each other. Stand firm in the faith. The second two, they're also pretty much the same. Be courageous or act like men. Be strong. There's going to be opposition. So man up and get ready for it. Don't be surprised or shocked when this comes. But the last command is the one that stands out the most. It's Paul's answer to this church. Do everything in love. Do everything in this love for others. And as you can see, if you think about it, all of these challenges we've looked at this morning are influenced by love. Showing compassion. Helping gospel workers on their way respecting workers of the Lord, recognizing those who serve, and greeting each other warmly. It's all about promoting love, living out the gospel front and center, and bringing the church together 
in the work of the Lord. And finally, Paul, he finishes off by stealing the pen from a scribe and he writes the farewell himself. And it's pretty normal, except for one phrase that I think sticks out like a sore thumb. Verse 21. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. What an astonishing verse to close the letter. If anyone doesn't love Jesus, let that person be cursed, be anathema, be cut off, be condemned. It's not your most popular verse. It's not going to be the kids' church memory verse anytime soon. It's not going to make a pretty graphic on the church screens or on your Facebook wall. But you see, it's a question at the heart of all the problems in Corinth. He's saying, do you love Jesus? If you get the gospel, if you understand all that uh, he's done for you, then that will overflow into love for others. But if you don't, if you love yourself and your status and your pride more than Jesus, then you won't love others. It's impossible to love like Jesus if you don't love Jesus in the first place. It's impossible to love like Jesus if you don't love Jesus in the first place. It will be impossible to show compassion, to help workers of the gospel, to respect the workers of the Lord, to recognize those who are quietly serving, to greet each other genuinely and warmly. It's impossible to truly, wholly, and sincerely do any of these things if you don't love Jesus. A song came on the radio this morning uh, as I was driving to church, and I wonder if this is where you're at this morning. The lyrics say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Christ is enough for me. He's all that I need. Do you love Jesus? Is that your relationship with Jesus? And how does that overflow into this church, into the relationships around you? How can you show your love for Jesus in this church, in this fellowship, so we can be united and together as a body of Christ? So let's pray as we think to that end. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you've shown your love to us and we thank you for Jesus and the sacrifice that he made so that we can be your people. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to respond to your grace and mercy by loving Jesus, by putting him first, front and centre in our lives. Lord, we work, we'd ask that you'd work in us by your spirit to respond to your great love for us. Lord, we pray that you'd work in our church. Please grow unity in the body here at Sunnybank, that you'd heal any hurts between people and groups in the church. Lord, help us to practice this other person-centered love as we point others to Christ. Grow our fellowship and work through us for your kingdom's sake.
We pray all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.